Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. All right, coming up in a couple of minutes, I have a stat today, and while it may be too strong of a phrase to say it's going to blow your mind, I do believe you'll find it to be very, very interesting. We'll get to that here coming up in a moment, and it actually kind of stands as a follow-up to a topic that we uh, discussed a little bit on yesterday's show. I think you'll really like this here coming up in just a couple of minutes' time. Prior to that, though, let me begin this way. There was a period of time in like early days of the Kirby Smart era where, I have to admit, I sort of saw what I thought was a little bit of a troubling trend playing out at Georgia, and I have to admit, at the time, I wasn't quite so sure what it meant. Think about the conclusion of the 2018 season for a moment. This is that time in which Georgia seemed really close to winning a national championship, but just not quite able to break through. And you kept thinking, man, if you could just sort of, you know, hold on to some of this talent, you might have a chance to really put it together in the upcoming year, whatever year that was. But for whatever reason, that just wasn't happening. I remember off the 2018 team, a team that was actually you know, offensively pretty good at Georgia. I think they led, or at least they were near the, they didn't lead the SEC in scoring, but they were near the top of the SEC in scoring that year. Um, you had some very successful players who had the opportunity to return. I'm thinking about Elijah Holyfield at running back. He had more than 1,000 yards. I'm thinking about receivers that clearly had NFL futures like Riley Ridley, McCall Hardman, who's actually gone on in some ways to sort of star at times in the NFL. You had these receivers like Hardman and Ridley who had kind of NFL draft futures and they might could come back. And yet we were seeing these guys all choose to leave. We were seeing these guys move on to the NFL. And at the time I was wondering, What's this about? How come these guys don't want to come back and be a part of this at Georgia? Defensive guys seem to want to return. Georgia wasn't seemingly at the time losing as many sort of draft-eligible players off the defensive side as they were the offensive side. And in 2019, another example with our buddy Jake Fromm, who had the opportunity to return in 2020, but after the 2019 season, just sort of chose to move on. And rightly or wrongly, the perception you perhaps had on that was – well, gosh, does just just Jake just not want to be here anymore? And is this in, in keeping with what had happened with guys like Hardman and Ridley and Holyfield from the previous year? How come these Georgia offensive players don't want to stay in this offense? And in 2020, and this is admittedly probably an example of our perception being wrong, but you saw Jamie Newman. Uh, who is kind of a funny name to even bring up, just given you know how obscure you know his time at Georgia ended up being. But you saw Jamie Newman opt out right before the beginning of the year, and once again, uh, your I think thought was, well, here's this quarterback who transferred here, now he doesn't want to play football at all. You know what is it about Georgia, and what is it about Georgia on offense in particular? Are these guys you know just not wanting to be a part of this Georgia offense? And you know some of that. On my part's probably overstated, and at the time, maybe some of the concern about that wasn't as well-founded as it sort of seemed to be in my mind, but I was kind of thinking about these things. And, you know, somewhere along the way, like, say, 2021 forward, all of that kind of changed, right? We talked about this at the time, that I thought it a very important thing to sort of uh, examine when you looked at Georgia, and some of you will remember me saying this, I thought a very important thing to examine when you looked at Georgia was – how much fun are these guys having? And if it appears they're having fun, they probably are. And I would say somewhere around 21, 2022, all of a sudden playing a part of the Georgia football team started being a whole lot more fun. And the response to that might be, especially if you're kind of you know more cynically minded, is, well, of course they were having fun. B.A., they were winning national championships. But I would push back on you on that a little bit. Instead of saying they were having fun because they were winning national championships, especially when it comes to the offensive side of the ball, what if I told you there was a chance they were winning national championships because they were having fun? Uh, what if I told you it was the inverse of that that was actually true, and somehow there was just something that sort of clicked and connected with the Georgia offense, all of a sudden it's putting up prolific stats, all of a sudden it just seemed like it was playing in a rhythm that it perhaps was not in the previous editions of uh, the Kirby Smart era here at Georgia. And all of a sudden, a lot more guys seemingly wanted to be a part of that, and the results sort of spoke for themselves. I would say, starting in 2021, not just because it was a national championship year, uh, I would say, starting around 2021, things around Georgia football just became a whole lot more fun on the offensive side of the ball, and a lot of the success, including the two national championships, was the result of the fun – 
that everybody was having, especially on that side of the ball. So all of that is a backdrop for this. The word fun is a word we've heard come up around Georgia football here this week as well. Carson Beck, the Georgia quarterback, who made the opposite decision of some of the guys I mentioned a little earlier who, when they had a chance to leave UGA as draft-eligible players, they chose to do that. Carson Beck, for this upcoming season, he pretty clearly could have gone to the NFL if he wanted to and would have probably been, we're led to believe, based on people who know somebody, who knows somebody, who knows somebody, uh, Beck could have been a pretty attractive draft prospect. But instead, he chose to come back to Georgia. And this week, speaking to the uh, Players' Lounge, he gave the reason for why he wanted to do that. And the word that I used several times a moment ago, that is also heavy on Carson Beck's mind right now there as well as he looks to this upcoming season at UGA from the Players' Lounge. I think you'll like this from Carson Beck. Take a listen. I think the biggest thing for me was kind of looking back at the season and realizing like how much fun I had. Like... I hadn't gotten to play in so long, you know, to be able to have the opportunity to go out and play the game I love again. Um, I mean, you never know what's going to happen if you, you know, do leave and you do make that decision to go to the draft and do all those things. And when I like, like I said, when I look back at the season, I had so much fun. I was like, God, I mean, what, what, what do I have to lose? You know, come back and you know, do it all over again. So. I'm nowhere near cool enough to put a music bed like that underneath our clips. That comes from the uh, players' lounge there on that. But the point is, is Beck's like, I'm having fun, having the time of my life. And it certainly seems like you would, right? Your quarterback at Georgia, I'm guessing that's a pretty fun experience, especially when you're having the kind of success that Carson was having this past year. But just given the fact that even for good Georgia teams in the past, on the offensive side of the ball, it didn't always look like these guys were having as much fun as they could possibly have. The fact that fun, I believe, has been such a hallmark of what Georgia football has become the past few years, and Carson Beck himself is using that word right there, i got to tell you, I take that as a pretty good thing. And I think it's good for two reasons for Georgia. Reason number one is, and a lot of you know this, a lot of you have experienced this in your own life, when you're having fun doing something, you're just a lot more willing to kind of work hard at it. Think about your job. There are some jobs that are really, really hard, but if you like the people that you're working with, you're willing to do the hard work because you enjoy the camaraderie that you form around that. Some of you have been a part of teams yourself, maybe not quarterback in the SEC, but some sort of baseball team or whatever else. And even though you're you know, getting pushed by the coach or you're facing tough competition, whatever else, if you like your teammates, if you like the guys that you're playing with, the experience of playing can be pretty fun. And when you're sort of naturally and genuinely motivated by the fun that you're having, all of a sudden you're willing to put in extra work and it doesn't really feel like extra work because you just want to be as close to this process as you possibly can. And if you're not a Georgia fan, if you're a rival to Georgia or a competitor to the you know, the dogs when it comes to the upcoming college football playoff or another national championship or something like that, you probably hate the idea that Beck is having fun and therefore even more motivated for success in this upcoming season. And by the way, in this same interview at the Players' Lounge, he talked about that. The fun that he's had makes him want to work even harder for this final year to be as good as he can be at Georgia. Once again, here's Beck. Now this season going into it, knowing that I'm going to be the guy, it's like, how do I, you know, work even harder than I ever have before? And like, how do I still like maintain that hunger even coming off of a season where, you know, I thought that I did well? It's pretty much just like trying to eliminate any type of complacency and then also finding, you know, that leadership role and building these connections with all these new guys that we have. Because, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a new team full of new faces. I love it, man. I love it. Uh, there's an aspect of Carson Beck that I've really grown to enjoy. I think Carson's a little bit of a different kind of figure than I first perhaps assumed that he was when he came to Georgia. I've grown to really, really like him, and I like everything that he says. And speaking of fun, I think for a lot of us who are fans, it's kind of fun to have what might be this year a little bit more of a quarterback-driven team, a quarterback who kind of has the role of like one of these sort of franchise quarterback types in the NFL, like you know Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl on Sunday. And I'm not saying that Beck is as good as Mahomes or will be as good as Mahomes. What I'm saying is the same way that Patrick Mahomes makes everything around him better on the Kansas City Chiefs. You know, a guy like Beck, 
you know, Mike could do some, you know, version of that, you know, for Georgia here this year. I think that's fun for those of us who are fans to think that, that Georgia has a quarterback like this who is as eager as Beck appears to be for the upcoming season. But there's something else going on here, too, that I think is pretty important there as well. Is you know, Beck at the end of that clip says, hey, you know, listen, I want to be a great leader because we have a lot of new faces on this uh, on, on, on this team. There's, there's a lot of new, you know, you know, players as a part of this offense. And to a certain extent, that's kind of true, but I think it's fair to point out, sort of compared to previous editions of the Georgia offense, I'm actually not quite so sure how, how, how true that is anymore. You know, I mentioned, you know, after the 2018 season, guys who had any chance of being drafted, it seems like they were bolting. They were on their way out the door. And Georgia did not bring back as much returning production for 2019 as it had a chance to. Same thing for other years around Georgia football there as well, where guys who you know had been a part of this offense and sort of thought, well, maybe it's my time to move on. It seems like they were sort of taking advantage of that and not looking to stick around. All of a sudden now, whether it be you know pr- primarily Carson Beck, but some of these other you know figures as well, it seems like there are guys who are sort of happy to to sort of stick around and still be a part of this Georgia offense. And I'll give you a number that sort of backs this up. Let me show you this on the screen. Connor Riley, who will join us later on the show, wrote about this at DogNation.com. Now this is semi complicated, but I want to give it to you because it kind of sort of boosts the point I'm trying to make. That if in the past. There was always this mass exodus off the Georgia offense of guys who just didn't want to be here anymore, at least, you know, seemingly. That's not the case anymore. Georgia actually brings back more returning production on offense for the upcoming season than uh, maybe it typically has in the past. Let me read this to you. This is ConnorDogNation.com saying that Georgia actually ranks 25th in the country in terms of offensive production returning for the upcoming year. It's also 80th in defensive production. So Georgia's actually bringing back more on offense than it does on defense. And according to Bill Conley, ESPN.com, who's sort of charting all this, Georgia's 47th in the country in total production returning. Not a bad number when you uh, compare that, uh, because according to uh, uh, you know Conley, uh, you, know, you look at Alabama right now, 115th on that list of what it's bringing back from last year. Michigan's 127th. Washington's 130th. They're all out to the top 100 in returning production. Georgia is at a 20. You know, uh, Georgia's at what 47th nationally. Now, there's a formula that Conley used to sort of explain all this. You can go to DogNation.com and read more about that, or go to. Uh, to uh, uh, ESPN.com and read that there as well. Connor also writes at DogNation.com about this particular topic that among SEC teams, Georgia actually ranks fifth in terms of returning production for the upcoming year. Uh, the new SEC teams, Texas, they're 25th, uh, Oklahoma 67th. So Georgia, in comparison to other top programs in terms of what it brings back for the upcoming year, is actually in a pretty favorable spot according to some data crunched by Bill Conley, ESPN.com, and a lot of that's on the offensive side of the ball. So all of that sort of statistical talk, what does that mean? It means right now it sort of seems like guys want to play in this Georgia offense because some of the formula that Conley uses now also accounts for experienced players in other offenses who transfer to UGA, like Trevor Etienne at running back who we've talked about, like uh, you know uh, uh, London Humphreys, the receiver at Vanderbilt who's coming in here, or Colby Young from Miami, or Michael Jacks from USC, and all these players who've gotten some experience somewhere else, it seems like they sort of want to be a part of the Georgia offense there as well. Because as Carson Beck says, the word that he chooses to use seems to be a pretty apt one. Things are pretty fun around Georgia right now. Not just because they're winning, but because they're also putting up uh, putting up pretty big offensive stats. And the fun that everybody seems to be having is pretty contagious. It worked in 2021. It worked in 2022. It worked for Carson Beck last year. And it seems like there's a whole lot of momentum building for that to work in a very big way in 2024 as well. My name's Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. We are happy to have you with us, no matter how you get to us. Uh, live on video, we start first in 15, dognation.com, and on the Dog Nation app. Uh, 10 a.m. across all platforms after that. Just really appreciate you being here. And we love our friends on the radio app and Sports Radio 960, The Ref. Obviously, podcasts, no matter how you find them, including the world-famous dognation.com. I tell you, uh, we are in fact, going to break out sort of a brand new era in terms of posting the show there at the worldfamousdognation.com. For those of you who say, well, it hasn't been you know as consistent as it should be or hasn't posted as early as it should be, some of you have uh, rightly so 
complained about that. We've got some great folks like our good friend Kaylee Manziel, who's going to help us make sure we get that out to you each and every day. And I certainly appreciate Kaylee on that. Also, while I have a moment, can I just say a quick thank you here? Now, we'll talk more about Royal Caribbean later on. we go cruise around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. I just want to take a quick moment here to say how much I appreciate the recent feedback we've gotten on our Dog Nation cruise. It is so much fun and so exciting to see all, I mentioned the word momentum a little earlier, the idea of Georgia building momentum. It is amazing the momentum we're building right now for our Dog Nation cruise coming up in April. You've still got some chance to be a part of that, but I just am blown away by the response that we continue to get on a daily, weekly basis, even though we've talked about this now, you know, for going on several months, just really, really appreciate that. Uh, obviously, Jessica Slater, boy, she and her team doing such great work to make sure all of our people are taken great care of. So, Jessica, thank you so much for taking care of our audience on a regular basis. And by the way, if you want to reach out and still find out more information about how you can be on the Dog Nation cruise, you can check out Jessica Slater. Great website, royaldogs.com. That tells you all about that. You can also uh, email her, jslater at dreamvacations.com, and she's got a phone number, too. We'll give that to you a little bit later on the program, but you can be a part of our Dog Nation cruise. The response to this has just been amazing here thus far. All right, we've got Connor Riley coming up in just a moment. Uh, fun stuff coming up with him, but prior to that, I do want to go around the doghouse here today, and I want to kind of follow up on a topic that we discussed a little bit yesterday. So, Big thing off the top of the show, Carson Beck's having fun at Georgia. We say the Georgia offense certainly appears to be more fun. The stats back that up. The results on the field back that up. But if you watched or listened to yesterday's show, you know that perhaps sometimes not everybody feels that way. Sometimes people may not be fully aware of exactly what Georgia has done offensively, perhaps because they're falling victim to negative recruiting maybe and some of the things that are out there the example we gave and i'll give the young man credit for being willing to be very honest julian juju lewis the five-star quarterback perhaps one of the most talked about recruits of all time before it's all said and done lewis was on campus visiting with georgia here this weekend getting a chance to you know really interact closely with some georgia coaches perhaps some georgia teammates there as well uh potential future Georgia teammates, I should say, and uh, really kind of learn the inner workings of the Georgia offense and exactly what it's all about. And the quote that we gave you yesterday, I want to give to you again. I just think this is incredibly fascinating. It may be one of the most important things we hear you know, during this offseason portion of the year. Lewis admitting that he had a perception of the Georgia offense that might just not quite be true. Let me read this to you uh, as sort of provided by Steve Wiltfong from 24-7 Sports. Uh, the quote here is uh, about Julian Lewis's visit to Georgia. He says there were a lot of guys here today, and I don't think any of us realized how productive the offense has been for Georgia over the course of the last couple of years. But I was able to spend a lot of time talking to some of the Georgia coaches, including Mike Bobo and Montgomery Van Gorder, who's one of the staffers, a former quarterback. Uh, and he says that he had a good time at Georgia kind of learning about exactly how productive the Georgia offense had been. And what we said on yesterday's show was, OK, this seems to me pretty obvious evidence of negative recruiting. Negative recruiting exists because it works. You plant that negative seed of, oh, you don't want to go to Georgia. Uh, you're not going to uh, – you know, you're, you're not going to have success. You're going to do this. You're not going to do that. That's the negative recruiting stuff that's out there. And obviously, the the negative recruiting perception that's formed clearly doesn't match reality because we just heard Carson Beck a moment ago talking about how much fun he's having being Georgia's starting quarterback. So I asked John Stinchcomb, the great former Georgia All-American, a question on yesterday's show. Clearly, the Georgia offensive success ought to speak for itself, but obviously the perception still lingers that Georgia is sort of the unfun program it maybe appeared to be several years ago. What do you do about that? How do you fix that? I asked John Stinchcomb that question yesterday. This is what John said. It has a defense and plays complementary football. There's times when games are already in hand before that 60 minutes is up and so you've transitioned to some of your backup players and you're not focused on blowing another team out it's let's see if we can keep our horses healthy because we're playing a long season georgia plans on playing well into the postseason most years college football playoffs and buying for national championships so i think that's part of the recruiting pitch you do have opportunities if you're an offensive player if you're a quarterback like juju then just look at what we do. Don't listen to what other naysayers are saying on the outside. So a couple of things there that are pretty important. Hey, John, I think brings up a pretty good point of 
hey, at Georgia, you may not play in a lot of fourth quarters, which means that you may not get the stats that sometimes come when you're sort of kicking a team around in garbage time. But while you may not play in a lot of fourth quarters at Georgia, you will play in a lot of 14th and 15th games of seasons, and I guess now even more than that in the new expanded playoff. And I do think that's important, at least for some players, the kinds of players you want of, do you want to go somewhere else and you know have the spotlight fully on you or do you want to come here and have a chance to really win at a high level where eventually you'll have the spotlight too because by the time you get to that portion of the year in January, you're the only team still playing? I think that's probably pretty important. But the other thing that John brings up there is is that obviously what you hope is is that recruits can see past the negative recruiting that might be out there and really see the results for themselves. The fact that numerically – I'm going to give you another example of this here in a moment – you know, numerically – you know, Georgia's putting up, believe it or not, truly about as good a collection of stats as as anyone is. And it's not just because of quarterbacks like Carson Beck. It's also the guys that Beck has a chance to throw to. And John also talked about that on uh, yesterday's show as well. Here's John again. There is opportunities for quarterbacks. We've seen that with Stetson. We've seen that with Carson. Uh, we, we allow our quarterbacks to make plays. And I think Georgia's done a much better job of providing – these weapons around them to kind of highlight those skills, not just the Brock Bowers of the world, but, you know, you just had the senior bowl this past weekend. There's a number of other highly skilled players that are surrounding these quarterbacks to make them look even better. So I told you off the top of the show today, I had a stat for you that you might find to be a little bit surprising. I'm going to give that to you now. I think it bolsters the point of just how true what John Stinchcomb is saying is. And when Julian Juju Lewis says, gosh, I didn't realize George was this good, um, I think this kind of offers that explanation there, too. We have this perception, I think, around college football that, you know, like everybody's just scoring a million points a game. And that's just kind of the, the sort of regular feature of the sport. Some respects, that sort of seems like it's true. But when you look at teams that actually average 40 points per game, and by the way, I just really believe that the best stats are the ones that are the easiest to understand. When I'm talking about like returning production and things like that, percentage of this and how the formula is tabulated, a lot of us sort of get lost in the sauce on something like that. I know that I do. But I would like to think we can all kind of understand how many points are you scoring on a per-game basis. And when you look at teams that are scoring 40 points per game for a full season – there are probably actually fewer of those in college football the last couple of years than you realize. This past season, there were just five that averaged 40 points per game for the season. The previous year in 2022, there were just six. So only a total of 11 teams over the course of the last two years have averaged 40 points per game. But did you know this? This is where it gets kind of fascinating, I think. There are only two teams over the course of the last two years that have averaged 40 points per game in each of the last two seasons. One of those is Georgia. The other is USC. Now, think about this in sort of stark, basic, flatline level terms. That Georgia is, along with Caleb Williams and USC, in sort of an offensive category by itself. Does the average fan know that? Does the average recruit know that? Does the average media type even know that? It's sort of hiding in plain sight here because, as John said, Georgia plays complementary football. And over the course of a national championship era, the defense has gotten a lot of credit. But when you look at the offensive statistics, you can obviously you know, see them. Hey, you know, Georgia's averaging 40 points and doing this. But when you start looking at the rest of the other offensive competition around the sport, you realize, well, actually, Georgia's doing this stuff more frequently than almost anybody else is. Ryan Day and his beard died at Ohio State or, you know, uh, Alabama and, you know, whatever they may have had a quarterback, including uh, Bryce Young for, for a portion of that time. Georgia's actually more consistently performing offensively than almost anybody else alongside like Lincoln Riley and USC and Caleb Williams. And Riley's you know, sort of thought to be the, the offensive guru with no match, and yet he's being matched by a team in Georgia that also plays far better defense and far more relevant on the national scene overall. So if you want to get to like the sort of bottom baseline level of exactly you know why it is that Georgia really truly is so much better than sometimes it's perceived to be on offense – 
there it is, that Georgia's actually doing something that's actually more rare than it seems, and the number of teams doing that along with them is actually a little bit more scarce than you probably realize. So uh, there you go. Georgia clearly with results that don't quite match the perception. Kind of a fascinating thing to consider. We'll talk to Connor Riley about this more coming up in just a moment. Prior to that, though, as we wrap up around the doghouse, let me also give a shout-out to our friends at Mr. Electric here there as well. It's Dog Nation's choice for residential and commercial electric needs. They've been in business for nearly 30 years. One of the things we love but the uh, companies we recommend around here is that long track record for success. It makes me feel good about the recommendation that I make for them, and I think it gives you some peace of mind there as well. They can do repair work, installations, uh, lighting work. They're very big on electrical safety, which is obviously really important for all of us. Uh, they got a team of licensed experts, insured electricians, and they also offer that flat rate price. And we think that that kind of cost certainty is a really important thing. So whether you need like 24-hour, kind of at a moment's notice, some sort of emergency call, or just a, uh, a quote, well, Mr. Electric got you covered, and they've got a $29 service fee that's going to be waived with any repair. So it's a neighborly country. Uh, country. <laughs> Hopefully it's a neighborly country, too, but it's a neighborly company is what I mean to say. And you can find them online, MrElectricAtlanta.com. That's MrElectricAtlanta.com. All right. Speaking of electric, that's Connor Riley. He always provides plenty of juice and energy during our conversations. And we are assuming today will be no different there on all of that. So what do you say we keep it going as we welcome in Connor Riley here on Dog Nation Daily today? From Athens and across the SEC or wherever the recruiting trail may lead, here's a DogNation.com insider. We will bring in Connor Riley here on Dog Nation Daily here today. And so, Connor, uh, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, Julian Juju Lewis going back to his weekend visit to UGA saying, hey, you know, come to find out. You talk to these Georgia coaches, you hang around with some of these Georgia players, you realize this Georgia offense is actually probably better than I thought that it was. To me, that shows you that negative recruiting exists and it probably works, that Georgia's got a track record to sell, and yet the perception dies hard, even though the results sort of showed the perception to perhaps be wrong. So with that in mind, do you believe that Georgia has an offensive perception problem? I do. Uh, I think, you know, quarterback is maybe one way to look at that, though. I think with the fact that Stetson Bennett was a Heisman finalist in 2022, and then you see what Carson Beck did this past season, and I think the expectations for Carson going into 2023, or 2024, rather, I think are going to help change that a little bit. I think you look at the wide receiver position at Georgia. I, I think that certainly is an example of where that perception lies. Um, and how that has maybe impacted the offense a little bit, but not to keep beating that horse. I think even you look at the tight end position, like, you know, I know there are teams out there saying, oh, Georgia only gets the ball to the tight ends. They only get the ball to the tight ends. No, they get the ball to their best players on offense. And Brock Bowers happened to be not just the best player on offense, but the best player on their team this past season. And so I think, you know, because Kirby's a defensive first coach and because the early success that he had as a head coach, I think was due in large part to his defense. And you can even look at that 2021 team. I think it being so defensively tilted, that only furthered this idea that Georgia is a defensive first program when it was a pretty good offense in 2021. And then in, in 2022, in my opinion, the offense was outright better than the defense was as a unit that yeah. season. So I think you could probably make that case again for the 2023 team. And so going into 2024 with Carson Beck being back and having a chance to put up big numbers next year, if he's able to do that, maybe that finally is the year that maybe it starts to turn a little bit. But the other reality is Kirby Smart wants to be a balanced football team. He doesn't yeah. want to be excited offense or defense. And so, you know, it, yes, there is a perception problem. Uh, I, I think it has impacted Georgia in some ways, but overall, I think Kirby sleeps confidently at night knowing that he's able to, for the most part, put together a balanced football team that is good to great for most years on both sides of the ball. Yeah, the stat that I gave before you joined us is you look at the last two years, there are only two teams that have averaged 40 points per game in each of the last two seasons. One of them is Caleb Williams, USC, by perception, the best offense in all college football. The other is Georgia. So you're sort of left to wonder, okay, well, if Georgia did have more first-round quarterbacks in the program or more five-star wide receiver in the program, 
would they really be scoring many more points than they are right now? Because the truth is, almost no one in this kind of what we think of as sort of the national championship era for Georgia, almost no one is scoring more than Georgia on a more consistent basis. So, you know, once again, it's like the component pieces sort of don't really feel like they should add up to what they add up to at Georgia. And yet, when you compare Georgia to the contemporary programs that's competing alongside, there really isn't anyone that's producing a far higher level of offense than what Georgia is sort of regularly producing now under a couple of different offensive coordinators. Right. You look at that 2022 team, in my mind, they win that Ohio State game because of their offense and because of the plays that that group was able to make late. And that 2022 team in particular, I think it was the wealth of talent that they had. I think you look at some of these other programs in recent years, and I think even USC is a great example of this. They're so reliant on Caleb Williams this past year that when he wasn't perfect, uh, USC struggled. And I think, you know, you look at Ohio State and Marvin Harrison, they were very reliant on him, obviously, in 2021. I think Alabama, uh, you know, Bryce Young is obviously fantastic, but they were incredibly reliant, in my mind, on Jamison Williams. And so, you know, Georgia just does not want to be built that way. They want to be built on depth. And I think in some ways you saw that this past season. Brock Bowers goes down. The offense doesn't really miss a beat in big games against Florida and Missouri. Uh, Lad McConkey misses the first half of the of the season, and Georgia is able to keep going. Now, eventually those injuries I do think caught up to Georgia uh, because when you were having both of them sort of hobbled late in the season, that you just run out of guys at a certain point. But it's a Georgia offense that is always built on balance. You know, for as many good running backs as Georgia has put into the pros of late, uh, you know, James Cook had a fantastic season. DeAndre Swift did for the for the for the Eagles. Uh, only once uh, in Kirby Smart's time as a head coach of Georgia has he had a season where he hasn't had two running backs have at least a hundred carries in a season. That was the 2020 season where it was obviously mm-hmm. a short year. So. It's an offense that is always built on balance, and I think that's maybe where it runs counter to the Ohio States, the USC's, uh, 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 Oklahoma when Lincoln Riley was there, or the world. You know, those those programs were geared towards getting you know maybe one or two guys really really big numbers. Uh, whereas Georgia, it's always going to be, you know, we're going to try and spread this around as much as possible. Uh, I want to talk about Carson back here for a moment. I know you wrote about Carson here today. We played some of the clips from his uh, Players Lounge conversation with Aaron Murray uh, here a little earlier there as well. Connor, I really like Carson. Now I'm basically a Georgia fan, so you'd assume I'm going to like the starting quarterback no matter who it is. But I've just really grown to like Carson. And for all we just talked about what the perception of Georgia is, while ultimately I just want to see Georgia win games, I'm kind of excited about this version of Georgia in 2024, the chance to be a little bit of a quarterback-led team, a little bit of a different look for UGA. I just think that I like the things that Carson says. I think his mindset, if we assume that what's on the inside matches the words that he's using, then mentally, spiritually, he seems to be in a really good place. I'm really, really looking forward to seeing what Carson does the upcoming season. And it's only a couple of minutes worth of uh, stuff that you know we've kind of gotten from him here this week. But Boy, I thought it was pretty revealing in some respects. Yeah, I, Carson is a different type of person than I think Georgia has traditionally had a quarterback. Even you know Stetson Bennett, obviously JT Daniels, Jake Fromm. I think JT and Jake Fromm sort of fit a similar uh, sort of archetype, you know, traditional quarterback sort of thing. Uh, Carson's not that guy. Carson is a different prospect i think you've seen that in him and his development a lot of quarterbacks wouldn't wait around four years to get a chance to start uh a lot of guys when they get beat out by a a former walk-on in stetson bennett for the starting job in 2021 a lot of guys probably would have packed it in at that point and and I, i think those past scars have helped develop Carson into who he is now and who Georgia, I think, ultimately needs him to be going into the 2024 season. I think one of the maybe underlooked things and, you know, obviously there's a lot of national media hype around Georgia and what they want to see and whatnot. This time a year ago, Carson was battling to be the starting quarterback. And yes, he was the favorite and ultimately wins that job. But he hadn't started a game yet. And he didn't know what he was going to look like in those situations and in that scenarios. And for him to now have that and to know what it's like to go play on the road in Neyland Stadium, what it's like to play Alabama in an SEC championship game, to have those experiences under his belt going into this offseason where you touch on being a quarterback-led team, he's going to be asked to do a little bit more uh, going into the 2024 season simply because you lose Brock Bowers, you lose Ladd McConkey, you lose Kendall Milton, Cedric Van Praan, Dejan Edwards. Uh, there's going to be more on your plate. And so having that confidence 
and, and know-how of, okay, I, I know how to navigate not just an offseason, but a, a regular season as well and the ups and downs that come with that. I think is huge for him as he goes into a year where I don't think it's outrageous to say that he could be the face of college football this coming season if he's able to build off of what he did in his first season as a starting quarterback. Let me follow up on that by saying you're a much bigger NFL fan than I am. Super Bowl obviously taking place this weekend. And I think this year's Super Bowl is a little bit like last year's. And to me, that it kind of resembles what I think of as the two ways you can win in the NFL. You can either have a franchise quarterback that occupies a huge portion of your salary cap or you can have like a rookie style quarterback that's got a very low salary number and that gives you a chance to have a little bit more of a balanced roster. And sort of the previous era of Kirby Smart, it's a little bit more like the Georgia quarterback is like Brock Purdy or like what Jalen Hurts would have been for Philadelphia last year. This year, it sort of feels like George is a little bit more of a Kansas City Chiefs style team where like Patrick Mahomes is there and his job is to make everybody better. And he's clearly the focal point. And if there was a salary cap, then he would have, you know, the lion's, you know, share of that because that's the overall level of his importance. It just sort of feels like, you know, to use a word you used a moment ago, the archetype of team that Georgia is, it sort of seems like at least for right now, this offseason, it sort of feels like that's shifting a little bit. Well, Brandon, I mean, there's the rumors that Carson Beck asked for a $4 million NFL deal. I mean, who's sure. to say that he's not commanding? Sure, uh, sure. You, know, you could ask most people based in reality and know that's not the case. Uh, I, again, yeah, I think, it, and it's interesting, you know, we'll touch on Mahomes here a little bit. I'll go into the uh, tortured poets department for this. His numbers aren't as great this year as they have been in years past. And I think, you know, to someone who doesn't watch the NFL all that much, you might say, oh, the Chiefs aren't as good because Patrick Mahomes aren't, isn't as good. They're playing in a different way because of the way their team is built. They're shortening the game. They're, you know, because they don't have their wide receivers, uh, and Travis Kelsey, in my opinion, has lost a step. Uh, I think that they are shortening the game and saying, hey, we're going to put more on Patrick Mahomes' plate and maybe have less bites of the apple in terms of offensive possessions but know that Patrick is going to get the most out of those offensive possessions. He's not going to make a lot of mistakes, and he's going to drive us down the field. I think there are times last season when you saw Georgia and Carson Beck do the same thing. And so I think going into this year with Carson, I think obviously having a lot more on his plate in terms of what he's going to be asked to do, it's going to be interesting to see how Georgia – changes and reacts to that obviously there are a program that this past season 2022 as well they've stressed the importance of explosive plays and so if georgia is less reliant on explosive plays in 2024 because of the personnel changes they're going to ask carson back to not just be better statistically in terms of the numbers and things that he's putting up but get the most out of him while also maybe perhaps having fewer offensive possessions because we also do know and i think you'd agree with this and sort of bring the whole conversation full circle I do think Kirby Smart coaches in a way that tries to protect the defense. And so shortening the game and, 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 you know, longer drives for the offense is one further way, I think, to protect your defense. And I think that's absolutely something we could see uh, Georgia mimic what I think the Kansas City Chiefs have done this year. Not to make this whole conversation about the offense, but I thought you had a really interesting piece about Dejon Edwards at DogNation.com. And I think it brought up a really good point, which is, you know, we've talked a little bit about Trevor Etienne on this show as of late. The fact that he's kind of being brought in what you would think to be a little bit of a dynamic playmaker for the Georgia offense. Something I think is a welcome addition here. But what Georgia seemingly typically has, the great power running running back, the sort of borrow the oldest cliche in the book, the thunder to go along with the lightning. It's not obvious who that guy is going to be for Georgia for this upcoming season. No shortage of options, of course. Branson coming back from injury, Roderick Robinson, who seems to be generating a little bit of buzz right now. I mean, and I know you wrote about this, there's no shortage of options there, but that guy who can provide the sort of power style to go along with for Etienne, what might be a really pretty impressive finesse style, that is a pretty important question to be answered for Georgia starting this spring and then moving towards the fall, right? Yeah, I think Trevor Etienne, much like the Los Angeles Kings in uh, 1993 NHL, are more of a finesse team. <laughs> Very good uh, I, 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 I think, you know, I don't expect much from Branson Robinson, certainly early in the season. He's not expected to go through spring practice as he continues to recover from his patella tendon injury. And so, you know, uh, Chauncey Bowens is in as a freshman. Uh, Dwight Phillips Jr. and, and Nate Frazier, one, I, I think are more closer to the mold of Trevor Etienne in terms of the way they play, in terms of the way I think they're ultimately going to be used, too. They're not going to be here a, until the summer. 
So I think in reality, you're looking at Andrew Paul and Roderick Robinson, two guys who have had some injury concerns. Robinson only played in five games this past season with an ankle injury. And then obviously Andrew Paul missed his full freshman season because of a torn ACL. And, you know, Dejon Edwards last year had 165 carries uh, for the season. Branson Robinson, Roderick Robinson, Andrew Paul, and then obviously the three freshmen have a combined 121 career carries. So uh, it, there is an unknown aspect to that. I, I will note, as you pointed out, uh, Roderick Robinson, I think, was someone who had a very good month of bowl practices and, and is hoping to carry that into uh, a strong spring practice. He certainly has the build, I think, to hold up as a sort of between the tackles runner and someone who can get you those hard earned three, four yards. Uh, you know, obviously you look at what James Cook, I think, did for the 2021 team, even Kendall Milton this past season, you know, those are the more dynamic types. But in having a guy that can command 13, 14, 15, 16 carries over the course of the game, I think is huge to keep those other guys more effective. You know, I do think that Trevor in coming to Georgia is going to be maybe a little bit more productive than he was at Florida, but I don't expect him to be someone who Georgia is going to give the ball to, you know, 200 plus times over the course of a season. I think they're going to try and get the absolute most out of Trevor Etienne. And in doing so, they're going to have to find someone who can get them 10, 11, 12 carries a game from that Branson Robinson, Roger Robinson, Andrew Paul uh, trio there. One more thing on a different subject, uh, and you've also written about this dognation.com, and maybe there's not much to be said about this, but what do you make of the fact that right now nationally there's just so little skepticism about UGA? ESPN does these like little panel writing deals of kind of projecting the upcoming season, and pretty much I believe everybody had Georgia as the number one seed going into the 12-team playoff. A lot of change. Uh, and yet it seems like there's just not a whole lot of skepticism about Georgia to add to that. FanDuel's got spreads out. Uh, Georgia's a point-and-a-half favorite at Texas, three-and-a-half point favorite at Alabama, three-and-a-half point favorite at Ole Miss, uh, two-touchdown favorite against Clemson for all the talk of, you know, toughest schedule Georgia's ever played. They're actually still a point-spread favorite in all of these neutral road, you know, game-type atmospheres here. Not a lot of doubters of UGA here at the moment. Does that do anything for you one way or another? Yeah, I, I, you know, ESPN can't beat up on Georgia's schedule like maybe they perhaps have in the past. And so I guess they just fall to fawning over what this team could be. Obviously, I think as we get closer and we go through the offseason, people will be able to find uh, nits to pick and, and sort of see what they want to see with this Georgia team. But I think, you know, from the national media types who view this team through the, you know, 10,000 foot lens, uh, when you have, I, I think, the track record that Georgia does and the fact that they are bringing back their starting quarterback, whereas you look at a team like Ohio State that is not, uh, tech, uh, Oregon is not either. Uh, you know, Texas is obviously up there as well, that they have some key guys to replace both on the defensive line and wide receiver position. And as we have, I think, seen in recent years, and I don't know how much national media people are actually tuned into this. I think those are the two positions where if you have key snaps and key players to replace, it's a little bit tougher to turn over than perhaps, say, a running back or or, or a linebacker in that sense. So I, I think the fact that you have some known quantities with Georgia at those positions, along with the fact that they bring back Carson Beck, yeah, it's going to be easy to pencil Georgia in as the number one team. I think people probably see the SEC as the deepest league. And with Alabama you know, taking a step back under Kalen DeBoer, I think that going forward, they're just going to assume that Georgia is going to be the top team in the SEC. And traditionally, that has been the team that has been the number one team in the college football playoff rankings uh, this past season, notwithstanding. Speaking of Alabama taking a step back under Kalen DeBoer, we don't have over-unders for everybody yet. But have you seen the Alabama number? It is out. Have you seen it? I, I have seen it. I, I watch your program, B.A. I'm a little disappointed that you didn't think I would see this. It is a nine and a half. Nine and a half. Uh, lowest it's been in quite some time. It's going to be a fascinating year, Connor. I, I'm so excited about it, both in terms of what I think the Georgia's able to do, but also I just think we need a breath of fresh air in this sport. I think a 12-team playoff and you know tougher schedules for the better teams and the SEC and the Big Ten, I think that you know kind of provides that. This is going to be a really fun year, I believe. We've got a lot of good – now there's some awful jumps going on we got to talk about too but the uh the actual stuff between the white lines i believe is probably better than it's ever been this is an incredibly resilient sport no matter how you know much idiots outside the bounds try to mess it up college football on the field is still uh, about as good as it gets in my mind 
So you're telling me that you're not excited to talk about uh, unionization efforts and what happened <laughs> if I need to forward? Yeah, I'm shocked to hear that. Hey, I did not get into this business to discuss stuff related to the National Labor Relations Board. That that just sort of sounds like something that I don't really want to necessarily do. But unfortunately, these days and ages, we're sort of forced to do that more than ever before. But Connor, I do like talking the football with you, and I appreciate your time to allow us to do that. We'll look forward to reading a whole lot more from you there at dognation.com and obviously having you back here on the uh, show again there as well. You got a Super Bowl pick before we say goodbye to you? I'm going to I'm gonna be the worst person you know. I'm going to put money on the Chiefs to win and root for the 49ers. That way I have a classic emotional hedge and either the team that I want to win wins or I win money. So Number still two? Is it still sitting at two? I saw it at two and a half yesterday. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, I'm going to bet the Chiefs' money line. Actually, if you think the Chiefs are going to win, I think the maybe smarter play in terms of odds would be to bet Patrick Mahomes to win the MVP at plus 130 because if the Chiefs win, he's the obvious favorite there. And you just get better numbers at that, whereas I believe Chiefs' money line right now is like uh, minus 120. Yeah, if Kelsey scores, just given the attention that he's getting, which, by the way, he has in these playoffs, been scoring touchdowns, if he scores, is there an emotional push to make him the MVP? Just given the fact that the Chiefs are not scoring a ton of points right now, and so one touchdown could be a big deal. I'm guessing you get a pretty good plus number on Kelsey as the MVP. Is that worth a flyer? I think that is as well, especially as you point out, uh, if, you know, if they were handing out an MVP of the AFC championship game, it would probably have gone to Travis Kelsey. Mm-hmm. And so I think three touchdowns in the last two games, obviously Taylor Swift is going to be there now that obviously doesn't influence things, but I, I think that is certainly something to watch. And if you want really good odds, that might perhaps be the way to go about it. Fun to think about Connor. Good stuff. Well, I'll look forward to talking to you soon. As always, it was a pleasure. Let's take a look around the rest of the league. This is SEC Through. So let me just say this really quick, and I know that there's a little bit of like a everything sort of creates sort of an online divide. Everybody likes to argue on the internet. I totally get that. We kind of participate in that kind of stuff around here too, I guess. But there's this issue of like backlash to Taylor Swift and her presence at the Super Bowl, and then there's like the backlash to the backlash of, you know, why aren't people complaining about this? Like, I'm not really a participant in either side of that discussion for the most part. I just don't really do a lot of, like, celebrity culture type stuff. I'm just not that into it. I will tell you this, though. This is one of the most amazing phenomena. It may be the most amazing phenomenon I've ever seen, at least from one respect. Like, my daughter is eight years old. When I tell you that my daughter, historically, has not cared anything, and I mean anything, about football, some of y'all would be so mad at her if you knew the games that she's been lucky enough to attend that she could have cared less about, that she curled up in her seat, slept through the fourth quarter of the Peach Bowl win against Ohio State or the you know the game in Charlotte against Clemson, the, the uh, Orange Bowl against Michigan. Like She's been to this incredible collection of games, and they mean nothing to her. They are so meaningless. And yet my 8-year-old daughter... She knows so much about the Kansas City Chiefs right now. I mean, I'm not being – I'm being just straight serious. It is amazing what she knows about the Chiefs and what she knows about the Super Bowl. And, you know, she's giving me, like, hot takes about, you know, the Chiefs are going to win and all this. It, it's just amazing. Like, so, you you know, whether it's a good thing, bad thing, you like Taylor Swift, you don't. I honestly really don't care either way. Uh, but it is amazing. The transformation this is, you know, caused in terms of a young, very, very young girl like this who could care less about football. Even the football games she's attended, she could care less about. And she is all into this Super Bowl. So something's going on there. Uh, pretty fascinating stuff. And she look ahead to Chiefs and Niners coming up from Vegas on Sunday. Time now for Cruise Around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. By the way, speaking of Vegas... One of the things I love about Royal Caribbean right now, you've heard me talk about Hideaway Beach. This is the brand new add-on new section of Perfect Day Coco Cay. Perfect Day Coco Cay is the private island oasis exclusively for those on a Royal Caribbean cruise vacation. And the newest part of Perfect Day Coco Cay is Hideaway Beach, which is kind of an adults-only type thing. Not, you know, like sort of think about Vegas-style pool party. That's kind of one of the vibes you get. You also have the chance to rent the cabanas and you have your own, you know, sort of special spot there on the beach. It's really, really nice. It's really, really fun. I think it's a wonderful new part in addition 
to Perfect Day Coke OK. I think it's uh, fantastic. And it's just one of the things I can't wait for people to experience as part of our Dog Nation cruise coming up in April. Now, if you're watching on video, you're seeing some of the newest uh, video of Icon of the Seas. I got to tell you, I am still uh, thinking and, and, you know, and, and, and reflecting back fondly on my trip on Icon of the Seas. What was it now a few days ago? And it, people continue to come up to me. B.A., I heard you on Icon. Tell me about that. It's just amazing the the level of awareness that exists in the culture right now. But this brand new Royal Caribbean cruise ship, unlike anything I've seen from any of the recent introductions, you know, from Royal Caribbean into the fleet here, it's just people know about Icon. They're so excited about it. And Jessica Slater is the one to know to get on board, whether it's Icon anytime now or Lure of the Seas coming up in April. Or if you want to think about the next Royal Caribbean debut, Utopia of the Seas coming up in July, sailing out of Port Canaveral right down the road from us here. Jessica's the one to know about all of that. You can give her a call 770-718-9147. That's 770-718-9147. You can also email her jslaterdreamvacations.com. Get booked up on Icon. Be a part of the Dog Nation cruise. That's April. Leaving out of Port Canaveral. Going to Nassau on the Bahamas. Going to Perfect Day Coco Cay. We've had some conversations uh, around here as of late about some of the fun, specialty themed Dog Nation events we're going to be doing for this. Y'all, it's going to be an amazing time. Cannot wait for that. Now, Let's transition to cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. What is probably not going to be an amazing time is National Signing Day. Did y'all know that National Signing Day is tomorrow? Uh, old school National Signing Day. It's essentially now in December. But there was a time, and it was as recently as the class of 2017, we still only had the one signing day, and it was on this sort of first, uh, is it first Wednesday in uh, February? Uh, but right here in early February. Well, that ain't true anymore. Obviously, most of this gets done now in December. Which means tomorrow's like just another Wednesday. Now, there's a guy who's out there. His name's Terry Bussey. He's a current Texas A&M commit. He's a five-star athlete from, is it is it Tenson, Texas? I say it? Tenson, Texas? Uh, Timson, Texas, maybe? Um, uh, he's a five-star athlete. He's out there. Uh, he's recently taken a visit to Georgia. I guess there's some chance that Georgia's considered involved in this. Probably at the moment, maybe no more than a hat on the table. I don't get the sense from... Anybody that I've talked to that's probably coming to Georgia, the sort of online chatter, the people who know somebody who know somebody who know somebody sort of things right now that if he doesn't stick with his Texas A&M commitment, I do believe that A&M hosted him this past weekend, the sort of final weekend prior to the dead period. Maybe that was a good thing for the Aggies. But if he doesn't go to Texas A&M, it seems like smart money right now maybe puts him at LSU. Uh, maybe that's the case here. But I guess if there's any chance at fireworks, it comes in the way of Terry Bussey, the five-star athlete. But it sort of seems like that while – you know, George has been a little bit of a factor here, got the visit, and maybe a hat on the table, so to speak. This is probably A&M LSU, I believe. And in terms of does he stick with the Aggies or go to Baton Rouge, honestly, I don't have much of an opinion. I don't really care. But um, it does not seem like Bussy is probably coming to Georgia. But, hey, you know, you never know, right? I mean, if nothing else, maybe there'll be a little bit of a last-minute swerve just to build some interest in National Signing Day. We'll see if that is the case. Obviously, you would presume NIL is a factor in that. And speaking of NIL, a very interesting announcement coming from Missouri. And this did come from the sort of official Missouri you know, apparatus here, that someone has given Missouri a gift of $62 million. And of this $62 million, 50 of this has been designated for improvements to Faroe Field, and $12 million of this is going to what's called the Tiger Fund, which is basically the NIL uh, arm of uh, Missouri. Now, let me tell you what I find to be interesting about this. A, the person who's giving the gift wants to be anonymous. So a lot of times these kind of gifts going to come with the sort of pat on the back and the prestige of, hey, look how much money I gave. My name's going to be on something. This person apparently did not want to do that. But the other thing here is how little Missouri, I'm talking about the official Missouri, you know, sort of public relations arm, seems to want to talk about the the NIL part of this. They're basically treating the Tiger Fund as if it's that's a, a charity. In fact, I had to kind of do a little bit of research to kind of fully appreciate and realize the Tiger Fund is an NIL organization. They sort of treat it as a charity, and they sort of treat it as something you're sort of doing for the overall student well-being, including scholarship, things like that. But this is where the NIL stuff is housed. And so we sort of live in this day and age in which NIL supposedly is out in the open and all of this is legal. And we're told all the time that not only is it legal, it's good. And if you don't think that it's all good and if you're not for all of this, then somehow you're you know behind the times, whatever else. And yet in the midst of what is a very size – I mean, from an NIL standpoint, 
I can promise you, a twelve million dollar gift is a very sizable gift. And frankly, to the average person, you know, giving twelve million dollars to NIL is sort of more interesting than giving fifty million dollars to a stadium because people do that kind of thing seemingly all the time. There's you know a lot more historic sort of tax benefit to that. There is you know oftentimes not when it comes to the NIL. Some people try to tell you that there is, but um, I don't think the IRS probably views too kindly on that right now. The point here is, is if you read the sort of official announcement on this from Missouri, you know, they very much obscure the NIL portion of this. In fact, they even have one of those sort of quotes from Eli Drinkwitz in here. And Drinkwitz doesn't really mention the NIL part either. Like, check this out for yourself. This may seem like a small point, but it's really pretty interesting how, to the average person, the fact that somebody gave $12 million to the NIL is all they really want to talk about at all. If you see the news reporting of the Missouri announcement, it's all sort of focused on the NIL. But if you read the actual release, the press release from Missouri, they barely mention the NIL at all. It's just sort of weird. They don't seem to want to talk about that part of it. And yet, pretty clearly, when it comes to sort of you know the, the ability to compete in the SEC and in college football, that's the thing that matters more than anybody else. Sort of an interesting, uh, I guess, conflict, I guess, if you will, in terms of how different folks are talking about that. Speaking of conflict, Ohio State may be dealing with some sooner rather than later. And I find all of this to be strange. I've told you before that for all of the seeming positive momentum that Ohio State has had with some aspects of its offseason thus far, one of the weirdest things is the fact that Ryan Day, now you can say what you want to about Ryan Day, you know, kind of gets a little too, uh, you know, tight and nervous near the ends of games, you know, pours sort of, you know, oil slick black, you know, hair dye on his beard and head. Uh, you can you can say what you want to about Day, but one thing you cannot say, though, is, is that, Day's a pretty sharp offensive mind. I mean, even someone like me who is open in my, you know, less than, less than, you know, uh, uh, what you'd call, you know, like for for Ryan Day, even I'd say, hey, you know, pretty sharp play caller. This guy who has sort of a history of being a pretty, you know, sharp offensive mind. We thought it was weird they were bringing in Bill O'Brien to begin with. Brian was recently hired there as offensive coordinator for some reason, some form, some fashion. This is a guy who had... You know, Jameer Gibbs and Bryce Young and all these guys, Alabama, you know, could not win a national championship with them. Um, and now he's, you know, in fact, the, the stat that some people cite is, you know, he was uh, offensive coordinator for Bill Belichick, the Patriots, they didn't win a Super Bowl. He was offensive coordinator for Nick Saban, Alabama, they couldn't win a national championship. That, you know, he's sort of the guy that sort of drags down these seemingly all-time great coaches, and now Ohio State wants to hire him. Well, they did, but now there's rumor they may not keep him very long, much the same way we've heard Ryan Grubby mention for other jobs right after taking the Alabama offensive coordinator job. You've got Bill O'Brien right now being mentioned as a candidate to become Boston College head coach. And uh, by the way, Dennis Dodd made people so mad. Do you all know who Dennis Dodd is? CBS Sports reporter. So Dodd was reporting about the O'Brien thing, saying the reason why you want to take the Boston College job is he doesn't want to compete against Michigan which is, I don't know if it's true or not. I just think it's really funny because Ohio State fans are so mad about that. But the point is, here's a guy that I'm not even sure why Ohio State wanted to hire him in the first place because, you know, I don't know that his reputation is quite what it once was. They do hire him, and now they're wondering if they're going to be able to keep him because he might go be Boston College head coach, a job that became available because the guy they did have as head coach went to the NFL to be a coordinator. Like, all of this is sort of seemingly hard to follow. Speaking of being hard to follow, last story for you, and Connor briefly mentioned this a moment ago. So, Yesterday, we got a ruling from the National Labor Relations Board, which is not sports content. I totally get this, but we do have to at least mention this. And they ruled yesterday the Dartmouth, that's an Ivy League school, men's basketball team is should be classified as employees, and so therefore they're able to unionize. This is probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard. A, because this isn't the first time the National Labor Relations Board has ruled this way. Believe it or not, a decade ago, 10 years ago, they ruled that the Northwestern football uh, team was also uh, employees, and they could unionize there as well. And ultimately, they didn't stand up on appeal, which is more into like the sort of legalese than I want to get into. It just didn't really hold up. But now what people are saying is, okay, well, they tried this before. It didn't work. Uh, this NLRB government agency, but the climate around college athletics is different than it used to be. We don't doubt, we don't doubt that's true. Um, the climate around college athletics is different than it used to, so maybe now this has a chance of standing up. You know, the one question I have about Dartmouth is, well, if they're employees, what revenue are they going to be paid with? The Ivy League doesn't generate any revenue. Dartmouth basketball, which has a losing record, that definitely doesn't generate any revenue. So if they're employees, shouldn't they all be fired? 
And like, we're not against, you know, athletes making money, you know, off the, you know, the revenue they generate. We just believe that a lot of college athletes Athletics actually doesn't generate the revenue that people sort of assume that it does, including Dartmouth basketball here. So uh, too difficult to sort of say where all of this is going here right now, but it's another chapter in the ongoing war against the current college sports model. And to sort of repeat myself one more time is, I don't care how much any athlete gets paid. In fact, I wouldn't mind if they all made a million dollars. But we do think that you know, the idea of classifying them as employees and unionization, all that kind of stuff that so many, you know, in sports media seem so aggressive towards wanting to push. We do think those kinds of changes have the potential to bring about a lot of unintended consequences that could prove to create a product both in terms of what we enjoy and the way the athletes experience it that's actually not as good as what they perhaps have right now. But obviously, that's not going to be solved here today. We'll make that cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. And as we wrap up here today, you know, normally this is the portion of the program we like to have fun and we like to do our golden shoes and find a reason to sort of maybe have a little chuckle on the way out the door today. Unfortunately, we're not able to do that. Sad news coming down yesterday. Some of you know this man personally. Uh, I saw this from Zach Klein on X. I'll show it to you on the screen. The man who's lately been known as Big Dog Woods, Trent Woods, carrying on a tradition started by his father, uh, according to Zach Klein, suddenly passed away yesterday at the age of 45, which is just so young. This is so sad. Zach saying that he was crushed just to pass this along. We're certainly crushed to receive the news there as well. Zach encouraging us to keep the family in our prayers. Sincerely, we will. Had a chance to know this family a little bit. Uh, Mr. Woods was a part of a dog nation event we did many years ago before he passed. And now to find out that Trent has passed away at the age of 45. Some of you, as I said, know him personally. Uh, incredibly, incredibly sad. We do send on uh, prayers here and just encourage all of you to, to hold your loved ones tight. No th day is guaranteed to us. Obviously, the uh, Woods family, a very, very sad thing here. So a part of our Dog Nation community there as well. So certainly condolences. In incredible, incredibly sad news there. We'll do the awkward transition and also give you a little bit of a Gator Hater update on the way out the door there as well. 1,186 days since Florida's beaten Georgia. We enjoy that, but obviously not enjoying the uh, sad news there of a member of the Georgia fan base, uh, certainly gone too soon. Y'all have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. Dog Nation Daily. So we'll talk to you then, everybody.